Fill the Gap, the official podcast series of the CMT Association, hosted by David Lundgren and Tyler Wood. This monthly podcast will bring veteran market analysts and money managers into conversations that will explore the interviewee's investment philosophy, their process, and decision-making tools. By learning more about their key mentors, early influences, and their long careers in financial services, Fill the Gap will highlight lessons our guests have learned over many decades and multiple market cycles. Join us in conversation with the men and women of Wall Street who discovered, engineered, and refined the discipline of technical market analysis. Good morning, David Lundgren, on this fine, sunny Sunday, May 22nd. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Tyler. Doing well. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. And for all of our listeners, what a special occasion for us uh, to release episode, let's call it 17 and a half, special edition from Fill the Gap, uh, recorded live at our symposium. What What an awesome experience, right, Dave? That was amazing. I'm still coming down from it because what's what was incredible with COVID was how it drove so much traffic to uh, FinTwit and and uh, other social media platforms. And you, you get to see and become aware of some pretty great technicians that are out there um, as they look for these channels to express their views. And, and, uh, and to then now, two years later, be able to actually meet some of these folks that you've only come to know through FinTwit. It was just a, such a special opportunity. And and I feel like I've, you know, formed some great friendships that will last for a long time. Yeah, friendships with someone's uh, Twitter handle, and now you can finally put a face with the name, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. And a lot well, of the folks was... are a lot taller than they looked on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> You're <laughs> exactly more than those fifty pixels will allow. Yeah. Oh, dear. It was it was such a great experience for us as well. The entire CMT staff, uh, you know, we spent two years uh, locked out of having a live event. And I know today's interview, this special edition, uh, was about three years in the making. We had invited Bill Miller the fourth to the 2020 symposium, and uh, of course. COVID uh, had other uh, ideas about what was going to happen for live events, and uh, we certainly felt um, just a lot of gratitude, a lot of uh, really positive energy for folks who uh, were looking to get together with colleagues and share ideas and be in person. Uh, A lot of unsolicited hugs going around at cocktail hours and uh, throughout the conference. Uh, It felt really great to be there in person. But of course, uh, we also broadcast this online hybrid event. Uh, it was it was held April 28th and 29th in Washington, D.C., but we had attendees from all over the globe. And uh, for many of you who are listening to this, uh, you might want to go back and, and review some of the content that was presented at the symposium. That's all going to be available at cmtassociation.org. So, Dave, let's uh, let's dive into this special guest uh, for you in conversation with uh, with Bill Four. Uh, what were really the standouts? What what, what blew your mind uh, talking to this great investor? You know, I, I made a big deal out of our, our last episode with Laura Martin and how it just seemed like 
she literally said everything we could ever want a fundamentally minded investor who happens to have her CMT to say, um, particularly on this podcast, because it's our goal is to is to showcase how these things work together and, and to have Laura do such a great job on the day that, you know, she had a sell rating on Netflix and it blew up on that day. And she credited she credited much of her CMT training to that outcome to then mm-hmm. follow that up with this special episode with uh, Bill Four. Uh, Bill Miller the fourth, uh, where he is uh, not only a, a devout fundamental investor, he's a value manager, and yeah. see yeah. and to learn how value managers actually put put to work the tools the toolkit of technical analysis was was really really interesting, and I and I think the 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 real surprise to most certainly to me and I think to you as well was is is how he indicated that his dad. Bill three actually looks at charts and refers to supports and resistance levels when he's when he's uh, making decisions and whatnot. So it was really refreshing for me. Um, he's a he's a super uh, talented investor, very uh, inquisitive and and uh, very thoughtful in, in the way he thinks about the world and in his portfolio management. And it's I guess in the end it was not that shocking to know that somebody like himself and his and his dad who are very holistic in their thinking went out and you know got their CMT to to round yeah. out that. You know, that was uh, for me, that comment about um, so Bill Miller, the fourth referring to his father, saying that uh, it was he was adamant that you see things from multiple perspectives and be able to, uh, you know, dissect or pull apart uh, an investment thesis or, you know, a trade that you've got going on uh, from multiple lenses. And obviously the technical piece um, not widely taught in business schools. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, fundamental dogma, but uh, to hear that they were not dogmatic, that they were really open-minded to all the tools that they could put to work uh, was was great. And then obviously, uh, you know, big, big commentary around how the tools fit into their process and uh, nice to hear uh, just how significant a portion it is in their uh, in their investment uh, practice. Right. Um, also, you know, really interesting uh, sidebar comments around other investment ideas. So the idea of you know, multiple perspectives or looking for opportunities in various spots. Uh, Bill Four referenced Big League Advance, a uh, friend of his, Michael Schwimmer, who had uh, set up a you know kind of a momentum strategy on minor league baseball players, yeah. Uh, yeah. which was fascinating to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of um, it's sort of like a, a derivatives play on trying to uh, you know like like call options on on the the future prospects of of minor league ball players and uh but to your point the fact that he's involved in something like that as well uh just right. as another you know uh, example of how he looks at the world very i mean his portfolio is, is actually very eclectic in the sense that he can go across the the capital stack uh in a corporation mm-hmm. and even do privates and whatnot so um yeah this is just yet one more example with this uh with this minor league uh exchange, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just another example of him seeking ways to, you know, look and act in and think differently about the world. Absolutely. Opportunity wise. You know? And yeah. uh, I know your discussion with uh, with Bill Four went into uh, the crypto and decentralized finance area as well. And interesting to hear a value manager with a really strong positive opinion on the crypto space. Um, certainly from a technical perspective, you know, everybody is uh, well aware of just how destroyed those charts look right now, but uh, you know, to to each their own, right? One man's junk is another's treasure. No, and I, and I, I remember because I used to follow, and I still follow uh, Bill Three, which is mm-hmm. uh, Bill Four's dad, 
uh, and I, I've followed him for, for, for years now. And uh, I, I used to get a charge out of uh, back in the nineties, early, late nineties when he, cause he used to run a, the, the leg Mason value fund. And mm-hmm. one, one of his, if not largest positions was Amazon. And he used to get pushback constantly about how, sure. you know, you can't possibly call Amazon a value stock. And, mm-hmm. and, but he, you know, he was looking out, 10 years and saying, yeah, but if you look at what the stock's going to look like 10 years from now, it's actually extremely cheap. And of course he was right. It went on yes. to become one of the largest companies in the world. And so uh, that, that's just, uh, here we go again, another example of how they stretch their minds to think about things creatively. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, they're doing so with, uh, with their views on, on Bitcoin. Of course, most technicians today would, would have a hard time certainly justifying or identifying any kind of, uh, you know, positive trend virtually yeah. across the entire digital currency space. Um, but again, that 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 doesn't mean like you can't have a fundamental view where you where you like Bitcoin despite the charts. Because Amazon in mm-hmm. uh, 2000, prior to becoming the great company that it is, prior to doing that, it did go down 90 percent. So the fundamental yeah. view, is right? It's just that you have a headbanger of a decline on in the interim that technicals can really help you navigate through and make you don't have to necessarily if you're, if you're that strongly view, your, your view is that strong about it longer term you it doesn't mean you have to sell the entire position but the technical deterioration could tell you to either reduce the position size or don't buy any more until you get you see a trend uh, change or maybe some, find ways to hedge your position with options or something like that until the technical position uh, you know yeah. improves Yeah, just to paraphrase you, Dave, uh, that navigation of the gap between value and price uh, Mm. can save a lot of headache and protect a lot of capital. doesn't mean that your fundamental thesis is wrong. It's just that the the market hasn't come to agree with you yet. And uh, being able to uh, execute a a strong and responsible trade discipline and portfolio risk management um, doesn't doesn't mean that you throw out all of your analysis or or, uh, see value from a real... Uh, wide-eyed perspective on the world. Uh, but in terms of, and I'm going to use that dirty little phrase, market timing, uh, mm. you want to you pay attention to what investor behavior is telling you, and that all shows up in price. Yep. Dave, without any further delay, let's get to the live interview from the stage of the CMT Symposium on April 28th, 2022. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima, a professional charting and data analytics platform. Whether you are a professional analyst, portfolio manager, or trader, Optima provides advanced technical and quantitative software to help you discover financial opportunities. Candidates in the CMT program gain free access to these powerful tools during the course of their study. Learn more at Optima.com. speaking with Bill Miller the fourth who is the son of what we say Bill three see I'm a pretty smart guy um, <laughs> I've been in the institutional business for about 30 years and managing money but also advising other portfolio managers and so I've had the great fortune of working with some of the great fundamental oriented managers both on the growth side and on the value side and what I have found just as a technician my entire career I have found that the ideas that I generate 
vis-a-vis -vis the technical process just really, really resonate well with growth-oriented managers. And I always struggle to find that similar overlap with value managers. Typically, when a stock is really cheap, the chart it doesn't look great in the trend-following perspective, maybe on a mean-reverting perspective, whatever, it might look okay. But I struggle to, to get value managers to embrace trend-following-oriented ideas. So here we are. We're sitting here speaking with Bill Four. He's a devout value manager. And somewhere along the line, you, you thought about your process and you said, there's something missing here. I need to fill the gap. And that's, by the way, that's the, that's the point of the name of the podcast, fill the gap. And so somewhere along the line, you said, I'm going to get my CMT. Can you talk to us about that? What got you to get your CMT and then maybe a little bit about how you do use it? Sure. So I actually graduated business school in 2008, spent a lot of time in financial classes, trying to figure out the market, how it all works, how it fits together. Um, after graduating, ended up going to work with my dad's firm, um, obviously fundamental value manager. Um, and along the way, you know, we started this income strategy that I now run. And, uh, and that's, I, a, that's a mutual fund? Is it, it a private it, fund? Or? It is. It's a 40-act fund. 40-act fund. Uh, it's a go anywhere. The whole idea is a high level of income. And so we're looking to, to buy undervalued yield is kind of the, the premise there. But um, so in working on that portfolio and employing a lot of what I learned at business school, I then did the CFA right after business school, got that done in 2011. Uh, and, you know, rigorously applying those principles to the market, securities with yield, uh, bonds, up and down the capital structure. Yeah. Um, I felt like something wasn't working. And a lot of the time there, you know, we can talk about the Fed regime and all kinds of other stuff. But there, Oh, we will. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, things just weren't working. And, and I was sitting here going, this is clearly too cheap. Every piece of fundamental uh, theoretical work will tell you this is too cheap. What, what am I missing here? And, you know, the more you dig into Bloomberg, and the more time you spend in the financial services industry, you realize there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. People look at the market from so many different perspectives. The marginal trader is not necessarily me. It's not at all, actually. Um, and, you know, one of the things my dad's really well known for is uh, coming at a problem from a variety of new perspectives is really valuable. And I was missing this entire set of perspectives that a huge part of the market was employing. And so you're at a massive disadvantage if you don't understand these types of things. Mm -hmm. and you're only looking at it from one angle. So I realized I got to check this out. Found the CMT online um, and did it, took the test and here we are. And, and I know one of the things I've always appreciated, I'm a huge fan of your dad's. I've followed his, his, uh, his success through the years. And, and I know that he, he, he was, he's a very open-minded investor. So he would engage in these, 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 um, these think groups that just really try to expand your, your, the way you think about things, science, and just bringing all these disciplines into your thought process so that you can have a, as holistic a decision-making process as possible. And, and so I, I would think even somebody like that, who's that open-minded and his, his uh, son comes to him and says, Hey dad, I want to get my CMT. What did he say about that? Was he, was he that holistic? <laughs> no, he said, absolutely, you should do that. Great. Okay. Uh, he actually used a lot of uh, technical analysis himself, although he's... Um, Are we recording this? <laughs> did, did we just hear what he just said? Well, no, here, here's an example. So the, the main sheet that he uses to look at his portfolio every single day, it's called a daily performance report. And it's got every single position ranked by weight. 
Okay, so the first stock, second stock by weight. And then, you know, has stock price, it has size of the position, percent size. And then right next to that, which is what matters, is performance yesterday, performance last week, performance last month, performance last quarter, performance last year, trailing year. So it's all these performance statistics of each position relative to each other in the portfolio. And then above that, we got commodity A, you know, SPX, small cap. But so we're looking at, we're looking at this stuff regularly. And, and I, you know, I never would have thought of that as technical analysis. That's exactly it what is that for is. Sure, yeah. So that's momentum. And, and I think people also um, make too much of a distinction between, you know, fundamental and technical analysis a lot of the time, because what we're all trying to do is just recognize patterns. And so we mm-hmm. use different toolkits to recognize those patterns. And fundamental guys are looking at, uh, you know, the actual cash flows, generally speaking, of the firm and the prospects for those and discount rates and things like that. And, and technical guys are looking at other things. But there's one of the things that's taught in the uh, CMT that is just danced, upon, danced around in the CFA is insider behavior. Mm-hmm. And we look at that extensively. Um, just because when you invest, you're investing with people. Uh, it's important to know what those people are doing and thinking. Uh, we look at the context around insider activity. Um, and we, we think about that. That's one of the highest signal value things I think out there. I think it's probably still underutilized, uh, broadly speaking. So that's a CMT thing and it's not really touched upon in the CFA, but it matters immensely. Right. Uh, before, before we get too further down the discussion of how you think about markets and whatnot, I, I wanted to ask you one of, one of my favorite questions, uh, with Tyler is to, to ask of, of a, of a guest is who were, who were your early influencers and, you know, perhaps what books have you read? And in your case, it seems like a silly question to ask, but I'm going to ask anyway, just because I, I guess maybe the proper or different way to phrase it for you in particular was what was it like growing up with Bill three at the dinner table? Did it, was it sports or was it how to, how to, by value stocks. What, what, it was a lot of sports. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of him also getting upset about people doing dumb stuff and, <laughs> and not employing like rigorous thinking and uh, goal-based analysis or, or actually using evidence to connect, right. um, you know, ideas to, to actions. And so uh, that's one thing I think he's done really, really well is just being relentlessly evidence-based. And, um, you know, that's an important one. Thing I've taken away from that. Uh, from an influence perspective, I think one of the best books out there, right? I mean, I, I can go through a whole bunch, but uh, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Yeah, that's a great book. That's yeah. such a good book. My son actually sent me a copy of that. It's yeah. so good. All the lessons in there are just timeless yeah. and so well distilled, too. And so I think a lot of those things are things that I've learned over the years, but never seen them distilled in that way in such a concise format. That, uh, yeah, and I, I just thought this is not an advertisement advertisement for Morgan, but his, his, uh, I guess it's, we still call it a blog these days, but, uh, he writes a fantastic blog and it's very thought provoking. It's sort of like a Michael Mulbison in the way he writes and thinks about the world. It's just really refreshing. And again, it's just pulling your mind in different directions to get you to think differently. Yeah. Michael is, is so good about differentiating, uh, process and outcome. You can have a really good process and a bad outcome, vice versa. And it's important to, to keep that in mind. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we had, an opportunity briefly a couple of times to just get to know each other a little bit better before uh, today's discussion. And uh, one of the things you had mentioned was, and I can't remember if you said it was when you were uh, at uh, um, Miller value partners or just before you, you joined where they had done an analysis of your holdings in, 
Can you talk about that? Because I just yeah, think that that's, that's just incredibly refreshing, but it's also, I think this audience in particular would really love to hear the story. Yeah, it's a good, powerful. it goes back to the first question. I should have mentioned it then, but um, with regard to value and, and employing technicals as a value manager, um, they had a third party take a look at the history of the opportunity trust and how they could have improved their own behavior. And the guy, what the third party found was if they had just waited until their picks went above the 50-day moving average, they would have cut off a ton of downside you know, volatility. So not obviously, but they were identifying things that were cheap and inexpensive, but the reality was they could keep getting more inexpensive. And by just employing that kind of behavioral hack on themselves, they, you could have you know, improved their, your IRR significantly. Yeah, and, and that's that's one of the main things I've, I've seen. Fundamentally oriented portfolio managers benefit from technicals many ways. One, you know, when, one of the great things uh, about technicals is that it's scalable. So um, I can't remember who said it, um, but he, he the quote was, "I can look at a thousand charts in about an hour. How long do you think it would take me to look at a thousand balance sheets?" You know, so that's that's the scalability of technicals. So it helps you with that. Um, but, it, but, but where I have seen it most um, benefit fundamental investors, it is on the risk side. So most fundamental managers have their style, they have their strategy, they know what they want to own, they know how to execute their process, but they, what they don't know is when they're wrong. And what you just highlighted is a, is a perfect real-time example of how a, one of the best fundamental managers who's ever lived, who you, show of hands, who knows who Bill Miller is? You've heard of him? So he's, why don't you introduce your dad? You do way better than me, I'm sure. <laughs> now his claim to fame is outperforming the S&P for, I think, 15 consecutive years. Yeah. Yeah, which is do it one year is tough. Fifteen years in a row is, is so he's clearly uh, in the in the top echelon of money managers of all time. Um, and here, so here's one guy who's of that of that caliber adopting technicals um, in a very rudimentary, very very uh, simple way, but it's very very powerful and very effective. And that's actually of all the fundamental managers I've ever seen incorporate technicals into their process. It's almost invariably that's the most impactful way is that they just have a column in their spreadsheet that delineates between good and bad trend and no matter how much they like the stock, they can't buy it until, well, they can't at least make it a big position until the market agrees with them. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so in that, in that sort of, in that vein, what, what happens in a portfolio that you're managing where you, you've got your fundamental thesis, you, you, you think everything's going great. You just had the earnings call and you liked what you heard, but the chart on, in a meaningful enough time frame, like the short-term charts is, Charles Dow said all the way back to the early 1900s, short-term charts are driven by emotions and fears. Long-term charts are driven by fundamentals. So I'm assuming you're looking at longer-term charts. You're not looking at the hourly chart and daily chart. So you're looking at the monthly chart, say, for instance, or the weekly chart, and it actually inflects trend, and it goes below the 200-day average, and the 200-day average starts going lower. But in your mind, you just got off the earnings call. You liked what you heard. What do you do with that disconnect? Do you actually respond to that, or or do you... Obviously, you sharpen your pencil, but what, what else? What do you do? Do you take action? Someone on the last panel made a point that you need to know what you're looking at before you actually go into the position. And that's incredibly important to be intellectually honest with yourself and say, okay, here's the thesis. Here's the three or four things we're betting on. Here's the signpost to look for if we're going to be wrong moving forward. And it depends on what was said during the call and how that relates to your thesis, right? And if it was one of those things you need to start thinking carefully about, you know, changing the thesis or getting out of it. Um, if it's not, there's obviously also an offset to that move too. And that when something moves lower, 
valuation changes at the same time. And so you then have to triangulate all of those things together. But it, it, it goes back to originally saying, okay, this is what would make me wrong. Mm-hmm. This is what I need to watch for. And if it's one of those things, and it's still even hard when you know that. You just say, this was what I was looking for. This was the problem. And then getting out, still pulling the trigger on that can be pretty tough. Right. Yeah. And so, so you, you, you could say though that if, if you went through that review process and you still came, came away thinking you like the story and everything's fine, you would, you would, would you, would you, or would you not take action if you could clearly see in, in a meaningful enough time frame that ch- this chart is broken? Uh, I'd love to say I would, but I know from evidence that I don't always do it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's tough. Yeah. I don't think we'd ever do something purely for a technical reason. Um, and one of the, uh, one of the lessons for me from the CMT exam and curriculum was, um, Nothing works in isolation, mm-hmm. and the, but the more stuff you have in your favor from a technical perspective, the more likely it is to work. And I think you can apply that more broadly to any stock or security, which actually is, it represents a set of attributes. The more attributes that are in your favor for that security, the better it is. So you want to see it both technically working, right? You want it to be good technically. You also want it to be fundamentally inexpensive. And if you also have this insider activity, so the more things you can layer on it, it's almost like a quantum mental approach in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it has to do with just making sure there's more things in your favor right? To, right. to maximize your odds. Right. It's kind of like uh, the way Ted Williams broke up the, the pitch, the strike zone. He, had, he broke it right down into I don't know, 64 squares or something. And he knew his batting average in every single one of those squares. And if the ball was in a square where he knew his batting average was, was 180, he wouldn't swing. Right. But if he knew that his batting average was 490 in this specific square, he'd swing. And that's just making sure that the, the, bent, the, the, you know, the pitch is in your favor and, and your skill set. We're baseball fans. And one of the things that's funny about that chart is if you look in the chart, um, it's a great chart, by the way. There's science, only the science of hitting. Right? The science the of hitting. It's a yeah. phenomenal great book. book. Great book for trend followers and, and investors to read. It is. And uh, if you look in that chart, there's only like, Somebody, I know somebody that once asked Ted, they knew Ted, they said, hey, Ted, how come uh, you hit 400 this year? But when I look in that chart, there's only like three balls or 400. He said, yeah, I only swung at those three pitches. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, the reason I I was asking about the, um, you know, there's a a certain clear deterioration on the chart that's, again, in a meaningful time frame. So it's driven by fundamentals and it's deteriorating, you know, in in your, your you joined the firm in 09? 08. Yeah. 08. So were you there during the global financial crisis? I was. Yeah. So that, that's what I always thought was, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't call the crash or anything. We had no idea what was coming. But when you looked at the magnitude of trend deterioration in weekly, monthly charts, it was clear something was bad. I mean, it was, you could tell that it was once in a generation type of deterioration. So in our portfolios, we didn't go to cash because we were bearish. We, we went to cash because the process was break a trend, sell that stock. Okay, let's re- redeploy the cash into another trend. And there were no other trends, so that cash just stayed. And then just we, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. And before I think it was probably uh, August or so, or, or um, June or July, we were 100% cash. And, and that's, and I think a lot of technicians can relay a similar story in that period because we just follow trend and we find out the fundamental reasons later. So I would be curious to know, um, if, if there are any lessons from 2008 that, that you've learned, you, you and you know, your partners at the firm have learned that you've used and utilized to change your process and make you more aware of that 
potential left tail risk where this does happen. I think I can't remember who it was, but it basically who said it recently, but those types of events have happened three times in the last 20 years. So they're supposed to happen once every hundred years, but they, they, they seem to be have a, they have a high recurrence. So yeah, they keep coming up, but the market's still goes higher, doesn't it? Yeah, so, it's also so it's an important point to keep in mind. Is that, that is true. That is your, fair, your yeah. process, uh, it's important to think about the whys in your process and to, to think about how they all holistically fit into what you're doing. And so, you know, it's really hard for us. And I think most people to intellect, if they're intellectually honest with themselves to call these big drawdowns, yeah. just by definition, they're rare. Reality is the world tends to get better over time, tends to improve itself. People like to work together, but the world is, it, you, you want to be optimistic. And so trying to predict these big, unique events is challenging. And I know the charts sometimes point to it and you get out and that's great and congratulations, but they also, you know, it's a bond market's called 20 of the past 10 recessions. Yeah. So, um, if you do that and you go to cash, you then have to get back in at the right time. And so it, it also creates tax liabilities. Uh, the only thing you know when you sell a heavily appreciated security is you create a liability for yourself and you have an outflow, then you have to pay the government. Um, and, and you just have to think carefully about your process and how it all fits in. So we don't try and actively time these things uh, for the reasons I just mentioned. Uh, we try and bet on success. You know, somebody mentioned yesterday, the economy grows. I mean, the stocks go up 70% of the time. That's exactly right. And they, they go higher over time. You need to think about your process, and we tend to bet on that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you can take a little bit of time and, and just detail as much as you, you're comfortable doing your, your process and, you know, tell us about your portfolio, what you're looking for a little bit more about the, the strategy and your philosophy. Sure. So, uh, the particular strategy was founded in 09 actually yeah. in the depths of the financial crisis. When we looked around and saw high yield debt yielding 25% and that's what that market was trading at. We said, well, look, if this stuff doesn't work, no one's going to have a job and we're going to be in a you know, Mad Max kind of scenario anyway. So <laughs> good time to start a strategy like this. Um, and even if spreads didn't recover that year, uh, they'd eventually recover and we'd clip a really nice income stream in the interim. And the idea was equity-like returns at a higher level in the capital structure. Um, that's still the idea, but we can go up and down the capital structure, go anywhere in the world. Um, you don't go short just long. We don't go yeah. short. No, shorting is such a hard thing to do again because yeah. you know stocks tend to go up most of the time. Um, but yeah, that's it. High level of yield. We go up and down the capital structure. We take concentrated positions, uh, and we sell them. We think the market agrees with us, or our position on the security changes, or we find something else better to buy. Um, but we're the largest investors in all of our strategies and funds. Uh, we're a huge portion of that fund personally. Yeah. Um, and you're, it's clearly, I mean, you're, you're focused on yield, which tends to have a very high overlap with value um, in general, right? So you would, you would call it a value fund or you just more like think about it as being an income fund that happens to traffic in value oriented names. I'd, I'd declare it characterize it as the latter. So, I mean, 30% of it's in debt right now. Uh, this is not your father's fixed income portfolio. <laughs> Our biggest debt positions is the unsecured debt of Endo Pharmaceuticals, trading at forty-eight cents on the dot, forty-four cents on the dollar now, um, just because we've done the valuation work and we've looked at the liability that we think will eventually be there, and we think they're ultimately worth par. Now they're moving against us, right? So that's something that we obviously need to consider. Um, you know, one of the things also that the CMT has taught me is is just the uh, immense amount of um, knowledge tied up in security prices. 
and being able to use that to your own advantage. So one of the things I love to do is, is look across markets and say, okay, where are the, where are the discrepancies that don't make sense? So we're buying now the equity, um, of a building materials company in Europe whose long-term debt yields 2.8%. I don't know why anyone would ever buy that, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, long-term debt yields 2.8% and the, the free cash flow yield to the equity is 11, 11.5%. And so that's pretty interesting discrepancy, right? Like, why is there that difference? Something's probably going to break, as someone would say. Right. You know, something's got to give. And when you do the actual fundamental work on it, it looks like the equity is where it's mispriced. Chart's not great, but, uh, you know, management owns 25%. They're buying shares every single day in the open market. Management just bought 20 million euros worth of the stock. Uh, that's all technical right there. Right? Yeah. And trades at four times right. EBITDA. I think it's worth 50, 50 to 60% more than where it trades today. So, right. so, uh, so I want to run something by you, uh, that this is sort of a philosophy I've, I've held to for a while and it's probably influenced by Frank Dixauer, who's my former boss and, and very good friend today. Um, in, we talk about this often. I think we actually talked about it last night over drinks, but, um, it's, it's my belief that, that value, Actually, doesn't work, and it's never worked. Hear me out. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with that statement. So it's not like value stocks don't go up because they're cheap. They go up because the fundamentals inflect positively, thereby unlocking that that value. It's become it's, the fundamentals become a catalyst to unlock that cheap valuation. And so, by definition, that means that that stock is no longer a value stock. It's actually now a growth stock. So it's it's growth that works all the time. It's not value working because it's cheap, right? And so, th- in other words, the stocks that are cheap, that don't inflect higher and trend higher, are what we call value traps. And the reason they're value traps is because there's no fundamental catalyst to unlock the value. Yeah, no, I think most businesses are value, you know, that are low multiple businesses are low multiple or trade a low multiple because they're crappy businesses. I mean, yeah. And, uh, they're in a competitive space. They have no pricing power, any number of reasons, but, um, yeah, over time, share prices are generally going to follow earnings per share. Right. And so if you can find something where that's not adequately discounted in the current valuation, that's where you end up generating the alpha and making a lot of money. Right. Um, but, you know, stocks tend to also follow marginal returns on or incremental returns on invested capital. And so that's why you're seeing now all of these ARC names that have uh, these high growing things with no returns actually on invested capital yeah. going down when things that, you know, Capital intensive businesses in an inflationary environment, those returns on marginal returns on capital are going through the roof, mm-hmm. right? And they're not really investing anymore. A lot of them are not drilling all that much for time with oil. And so that's kind of what's the dynamic is right now in the current regime. Right. And so in that, in that regard, do you, do you tend to find that your fundamental process works better in a certain, because one of the great things about technicals is it's fungible. You can, you can use the, almost the same exact strategy across asset classes, across timeframes, across regions. Um, you know, you name it. it it's, it's trend following, it's trend following. If, if it's a price, it'll trend and you can use the same tools. Fundamentals is different, right? You can't, you can't use the same valuation metrics even from sector to sector. That's very different. You certainly can't, you, you can't use the same fundamental techniques to analyze a company as you can to analyze soybeans, right? But you can do that with technical. So I'm curious, uh, do you find that your process, the way you execute it on the fundamental side, tends to work better in certain sectors or is it pretty pliable? 
tends to work better in stuff that I know well, I think. Yeah. So it comes down to circle of competence and what you know and don't and understand and don't. And uh, I think that's where it works the best. Right. Stick to unity. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your portfolio, if, uh, I think you said, was, is concentrated. And um, in w- what I find in is, and Frank, again, would, would corroborate this, but the uh, investors love the idea of concentrated, uh, eclectic, uncorrelated. They love all of that until, yeah. until it's eclectic <laughs> and uncorrelated, yeah. right? They, they love the idea until it's actually until you deliver right. it. So right. we, we struggle with that over the years. And so my question for you is you have a benchmark, you have a yes. public mutual fund, you yep. have a benchmark that it's you know, benchmarked to and compared to. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the, the mental tools you use to help yourself personally? Because this is a very tough thing to do. That's why I took a year off. It's very tough to do. It's draining. At least I find it is. Maybe your answer will be different. But what are some of the mental strategies you use personally to help yourself navigate the windows of time where you have your bets, you have your conviction, and you're just really deviating from the benchmark and you're getting, to use a phrase, a phrase from earlier, you're getting your face beat in. How, how do you deal with that mentally on, for yourself? And then we'll talk about how you deal with it for clients because that's even more important. I go and take the CMT exam. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a, that's a, that's what led me to it. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's understanding why, having a good understanding of why you're underperforming. The worst is when you sit there and you go, "Why am I?" You can't understand exactly. That. Then you got a real problem. Yeah. If you understand why you're underperforming, you understand the conditions that would cause that to reverse, and uh, what you're betting on, and what's likely to happen in the future, you can get more comfortable with it. Right. And how about clients? Because at the end of the day. That's, you, yeah, I think your answer was perfect. Um, not that I'm grading your answers, but I think that was exactly how, that, that's not certainly how I think about it as well. But what, where we've struggled is trying to get that same level of conviction and understanding at the client level, because at the end of the day, you, you can have a great idea, but if the client comes in at the highs and leaves at the lows, that doesn't help anybody. I think somebody mentioned that Peter Lynch's track record was George. Peter Lynch was 20, 29%, but the average shareholder was 10%. Yeah. And that's because of their buying the high and selling low. So, and I always, is that the more I've been in this business, the, the more I've kind of felt like the onus is on the manager, the portfolio manager to properly educate and communicate with their clients and tell them and help educate them as to what to expect. As you said, this is, this is what happened. This is how we're underperforming, but we understand why. And so therefore that's why I, as a shareholder, I'm adding to the position. That kind of thing. So do you, do you proactively, I know it's a mutual fund, so it's a little hard to do this, but is there a way that you can communicate to your clients and help coach them through these very difficult, but at the end of the day, very rewarding if you pull it off properly, these periods? Yeah, absolutely. They need to know what's going on. They need to understand the strategy going in. And I think we've had a pretty good, uh, you know, track record on the actual shareholder redemptions or lack thereof. I think they, Part of the problem too is that mutual funds is it's it, I don't want to say it's a dying wrapper, but it is. And so yeah, yeah. it's important to actually one of the lessons I remember from business school is getting a growing city. If you're if you're in real estate, you want to be in a growing city. You want to have a, that growth. And so mutual fund wrapper is not ideal from that perspective, but uh, and it's also not ideal from a communications perspective. I think now you are you're actually in a really interesting point. Um, in the investment management landscape and that you can actually have products with daily transparency where you can communicate with shareholders uh, directly live. And nobody's really doing that well. I think we're going to eventually do that. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, clients absolutely need to be informed of the bets you're making, the overall rationale behind the strategy and you know, when it's likely to be volatile or, or and when it's like we, we're pretty explicit when we're likely to underperform the benchmark and, and when we're likely to do well. And I think people get that. Yeah. And, and the idea is to coach them on that before it happens. Yes, right? exactly. Um, so let me see. We had some more questions for you on, on the on, on the portfolio, but I know we have some. We have limited time, and I want to save some time for questions here in the audience. So let's let's maybe move to um, uh, current outlook. And I know, obviously, we just uh, had a brief discussion on bit, uh, cryptocurrency and whatnot. I know that you know Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are very anti the like weapons of mass destruction for, for financial wealth, and and then we have Elon Musk who's all in. At least for now, who knows? But we, so we have these very smart, very successful people who have looked at the same data. Mm-hmm. They've looked, at, they've probably spoken to the same experts, but they come, come away from it with a very different conclusion, which is, you know, thankfully that's why I'm a, a, a one of the main reasons I'm a trend follower is because I let the market figure that stuff out for me. And we just heard somebody say that the best way to invest in crypto is using technicals because at the end of the day, trend is trend and all that. But we do have these smart people that weigh in with completely juxtaposed viewpoints and i know you and your dad are are, are I, won't, I wouldn't say all in on crypto but i know you you believe in it so maybe give us a quick synopsis as to what you're thinking about it and why you believe in it yeah so we've been buying steadily since 2013 bitcoin um i kind of got interested in it just from reading about it in the paper and just saying this is a unique weird little idea the thing's super volatile let's take a look and see what this is about and then when you actually dig into the white paper and understand that it is actually a technolo- technological innovation. So you, you mentioned earlier how people sit here or they look at it from different angles and you get a lot of smart people saying, oh, this is garbage. What the heck is this? Doesn't make any sense. This is rat poison squared, whatever. Um, the reality is it's, it's, a, it's a new technology in that you can transact with anyone anywhere in the world without any centralized authority. You don't need government to bless it. There are ways around that if, when you actually look at how the protocol works, uh, not that you need to be around it, because if you look at the uh, White House white paper, whatever, the executive order that came out a couple of weeks ago, they said they want, we want to be a leader in regulating this stuff. Not, not we want to shut it down. We want to be a leader in allowing this innovation to occur. So there goes your legal, could get banned one day, uh, bear case. Um, Although I think that was out the window long before that when they started auctioning Bitcoin to U.S. citizens to the, I think they've auctioned something like 25 or $50 billion worth of Bitcoin to the, to the general public. So you can't do that and then go ban it. I mean, that would just be strange, I think. Um, but again, it's a technological innovation that hasn't existed before because it's a self, Bitcoin is different than crypto. I want to make that point. It's extensively. I was going to ask you this. So they're entirely different technologies when you look at the consensus mechanism. And, and that's why institutions are moving into Bitcoin. They're not moving into all these other things. Um, so it's, it is a technological innovation. It's impossible, supposedly impossible to value, but it's not at all because there's a lot of frameworks you can use to think about it. And I wrote a piece called The Value Investor's Case for Bitcoin in 2015. It's on our website now. It reminds me of your, your dad constantly having to defend his value definition of, for Amazon, right? Right. In the 90s. Yeah. It, it, well, you know, to that point, what's really interesting is that so, all things that have massive right tails on them, yeah, exactly. every single one of them has people going, this doesn't make any sense. This is silly. This is stupid. If you can sell books on the internet, what? So, I mean, you know, 
we're also invested in a really cool thing uh, personally called Big League Advanced. It's run by my friend Michael Schwimmer. And so he, this is financial innovation. Everyone thinks they're going to do a startup and they're going to, it has to be an online thing. This is financial innovation at its best. He, he was a pitcher for the Phillies, the Blue Jays, and he realized that when he was in the minors, he's playing with these guys making 11 grand a year. And they're event, a lot of them are eventually going to make 30 million a year. And there's an interesting arbitrage opportunity there, right? And that you can create a, effectively a venture capital fund and get the guys who you think are going to be the best players. This is, he, he came up with all this around the time Moneyball was coming out, working on stats and all these other things. And uh, he came up with this idea and he took it to a ton of investors. And it was pretty much all no's. So we were personally the anchor investor in this thing. And what's it called again? Uh, Big League Advance. Big League Advance. He's now on his third fund. Every single one is like his third one's been oversubscribed. He raised, raised money like that. Right. And so um, it's income share agreements with minor league players. He, you know, did the models on OPS and who's going to do well and, and uh, ended up doing deals with a bunch of guys. And it, that fund is performing incredibly well. It's uncorrelated with anything else. Uh, and so that's really cool financial innovation. My point on that is everyone he took it to, except individual investors who do weird things, were like, absolutely not. This doesn't fit into this bucket. This is weird. And so things, generally speaking, that, that fit those categories often tend to be the things with the right tails. You know, the world is governed by fat tail events and people yeah. underestimate how often those can happen. And um, one of the things that also is super interesting about Bitcoin for this particular audience, I'm surprised that more people are not into it just because the technical data that you can get on the blockchain is unsurpassed relative to stocks and bonds and other stuff like that. So you can get, if you mind, there's data ever being produced 24-7, number of wallets being created, uh, realized price of every single coin on the bit chain, bit, uh, blockchain, um, all kinds of information out there that you just can't get in stocks and bonds. And, and that data, I think, is ripe for uh, potential people that want to be active managers of Bitcoin. I think it's an interesting intellectual exercise. Can you outperform Bitcoin using technical analysis? Yes. I don't know. I think probably. Yes, the answer is yes. Yeah. We have uh, Jay-Z Bretz was, I think it was episode 16, uh, guest on the podcast. He did, he did a great deep dive on that. What, I, what I'm excited to see coming out of his company is when, if, if he eventually releases it to the public to make it more broadly available is he's doing all kinds of like breadth work and index development and things like that. That's basically taking the same tools we've used for several generations in the technical community and using them to make similar assessments of the, of the, the blockchain in, not blockchain, but uh, you know, digital currency space. Yeah. So it, it should it should be very transferable. Um, but the the idea is that yeah. if I understand is it is that one of my concerns about uh, digital currency overall is that it just struck me as being very very similar to all of the IPOs that came out surrounding the internet from say like ninety five to two thousand, where we had all these companies that came out that would just put a dot com at the end of their name and. There were many things where they, they, they really didn't have a defined business plan, very similar to the SPACs of today. And, and there were hundreds of them came out just before the bubble took off. And then the whole, we now know that that's a, you know, a cemetery now of all those, of those former companies. Today, when you look at the, the most of the charts of, you know, I look at probably four, four or so hundred, uh, digital currency charts uh, on, on, in my weekly chart review, and almost all of them start in 2000. Very reminiscent of how these things happen where you just get this flush of IPOs and then the thing takes off and then everything. And so far, the evidence seems to be pointing to 
these things are watching. Yeah, now we also know out of the bubble in 2000, we also know that all played out. A lot of, most of those companies went out of business, but we do now have Amazon, right? Apple survived and we now have Apple. So somewhere in there is an Amazon, maybe it's Bitcoin, but do you see a similar fate from most of those other currencies where they're just mm. like sock puppets? And Yeah, I think it could be even worse than that. That, you know, they may eventually be ruled uh, unregulated securities offerings. Who knows? Mm. Now, Gensler has said that Bitcoin is not an unregulated securities offering. Again, it goes back to the consensus mechanism and the way transactions are verified. But um, and, and again, the impetus of it, there's no on, for Bitcoin, there's no head of the snake to cut off. There is no centralized authority. It's entirely decentralized. And if you think about the history of fiat currencies over long periods of time, they have all failed. Right. And if you think about the relevance of government over time, that is also going down. And so you can see this being a multi-decade sort of interesting trend. Um, Do you think the, the prospect for regulation, though, would undermine the, the, the I, all those values that people point to in, in digital effects? I think regulation is a good thing. I also think owning some uh, self-custodied Bitcoin is a good thing uh, for that reason. But... Um, uh, regulation is a good thing because it brings additional clarity to the space. Yeah. Interesting. Um, let's talk maybe about the Fed a little bit. Sure. Um, <laughs> what, what, so we, we had some great uh, discussions through, uh, yesterday with uh, John Roke, and George Noble, and Jim Bianco talking about regime change. We see it in the charts all over the place. I mean, it seems pretty clear that these are pretty violent changes. We see what's happening with the yen. Um, these, these, the FANG stocks are blowing up one by one. You know, there's a lot going on around the world and, and, it, and it all seems to be pointing to a regime change of some sort. And so from a technician's perspective, all we do is let the market figure that out. You know, the way I like to say it is that we hire the market to do the fundamental analysis for us. It's proven itself to be a pretty good fundamental analyst over the time. Over time, that's why it's so hard to beat. So that's our, that's our shit. We just check our opinion at the door and just follow trend. I'm curious. From your perspective, where you, you're not that devout of a technician, um, you, you come to this from a fundamental perspective, and you're seeing all these things happen technically. Can you can you see the fundamentals coming together with the chart? What's what you're seeing at the chart level, or are you are you still trying to figure it out? Do you think there's a regime change? I do think there's been a regime change. Yeah. I think there. What I think the regime change started when the Fed changed their reaction function a year or two ago, yeah. and they said they're going to let inflation run hot. Because prior to that, it was a quote-unquote symmetric goal of 2%. It wasn't symmetric at all. What happened was they kept raising rates anytime the, the CPI got even close to 2%. And it was you know between 0 and 2. Anytime it got 1, 9, uh, 2, or start raising, start raising. And so that's a problem because you have capital allocators across the country, whether they're talking about CFOs or anyone else, building the, the symmetrical level of two into their models. And that capital is not, it, it effectively means it's been misallocated if you don't have that level of inflation over time. And so then they kind of realized that as we were getting close to zero and going to this kind of vortex towards zero, the only way out is to get a little inflation. And now they're so far behind the curve on the other side. It's, it's you know, that's why value is ripping. And um, they're still very far behind the curve. Now, now they're talking 75 and inflation's at eight. So there's, they, to, to actually get, get ahead of the curve, they need to do something the market is not expecting. Um, and the levels just aren't, aren't there right now. So yeah. that's the real concern, I think. Right. And so they, it's, it seems to be the common belief in those halls that you can, it's more difficult to incite inflation than it is to stop it. So 
which which I always found interesting that that, that was their belief. But then why why were you so worried about it going above two percent? But that was that's what that was their modus operandi. That's how they did it. But here we are today, and you know we, we're now seeing the highest uh, month on month or year on year inflation. Uh, you know, in twenty years, maybe forty years, and and the question is, do you do you actually think that they can stop it? Like, put the genie back in the bottle. Um, I I I don't know at this point. It's they have to do something drastic, and they have to do it now. Uh, do it yesterday. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, the Goldilocks thing. I'm talking about that yesterday. Goldilocks is dead. That's yeah. That's probably right. It's just how long is this regime going to last? Um, you are seeing some interesting corrections on valuation on the other side of things, right? Mm-hmm, like yeah. you never been able to buy, I don't think Amazon at 14 or 15 times next year's EBITDA. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I just always, I, I remember, I, I see that and I, and I understand that, but I also remember um, back when Dell peaked and it was finally cheap. And then it just went down 90%. <laughs> right, right. So uh, that's why it's, you know, valuation is just not a good timing tool in either direction. But I, I do want to ask you that if, if indeed we are inflecting toward an inflationary environment, I think, okay, inflation, that means inflation expectations go higher, which means rates go higher, whatever that yield is, whatever that instrument that it's on, the price of it goes down. To drive the, mm-hmm. So you're, you're an income investor. How mm-hmm. are you dealing with that? Because that, that implies that you, you might be in so, for some... Tough road, you know. Yeah, no, we're doing stuff like owning Indo unsecured debt uh, at twenty percent yield that we think is worth par. Uh, we're doing stuff like uh, Chemwars is one of our largest positions. CC is a ticker there. It's a three percent ish yield, pricing power, uh, operating leverage, phenomenal allocator capital, serial share repurchaser, uh, good management team, um, stuff like that. So you're looking for yield in alternative ways that where, where the yield is a value type of yield and where in a rising rate environment, you're likely to see the residual cash flow that you're entitled to grow. So that's how you try and deal with it. And just stick through to the maturity to get the. the in some case, well, so let's say something, uh, we bought uh, PBF energy bonds at like a 75 or 80 cents on the dollar. I think they're now 95 and they yield seven or eight. We, you know, we may not stick around until par on that one, maybe, but it's, you know, we wait until things are fairly valued and then sell and look for other stuff to rotate it into that may right. not be right. fairly priced. Is there, is there anything more recently that's kind of checked the boxes for you in this regime that you haven't owned up until now that you're pretty excited about, whether it be a stock or a sector or asset class or? Anything I'm really excited about now. Oh, it could be puts. One. I mean, puts are fine. <laughs> Um, no, it, it's, again, it's, everything's a one-off bottom-up kind of basis. And then what you try and do is you manage the aggregate risk at the portfolio level. And so, you know, we invested in, uh, we had owned some Russian securities for a couple of years, which are currently marked at zero markets telling you they're not going to end up being worth zero, but either way, we knew our risk Russia going in this year was you know, 3% of the portfolio. Okay. If, that goes to zero, you're down 300 bips. And so that's the kind of thing where, you, you know, but you're still not down and out. You look at kind of our tracking error or volatility relative to the benchmark and what we can do in short periods of time versus it. So right. do, do you take any measures to hedge out foreign exchange exposure? No, hedging is a cost, I think. And so, but you need to have a fundamental view on the currency, I think, when you buy stuff like that. So for us, Russia was actually a, a somewhat of an oil 
energy, right? Yeah. And so that didn't work out, obviously. Um, but you need to have a view on the currency and what will make it move in your yeah. favor or not. Right. Okay. I have uh, one more question. So I don't know if you want to, do you have, do you have questions online as well, Bill? Yeah. Okay. So let's start, let's end with something a little more fun. Not that this hasn't been fun, right? But, uh, so what, what do you do for fun? What do you like to do? Uh, and you can say markets. That's fine too. I do. No, I, yeah. Markets is, is a lot of it. Um, do you just, feel like you work for a living? No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Cause I, cause I don't. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. It beats working every day. Well, it does beat working every day. Um, I, I like, to, I'm trying to take up golf. I love that it. it's quantitative. I love that it's, uh, personal. You don't need anyone else to do it. Um, do it on your own time. You get better watching YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. So let's open it up for some questions. Thank you very much. Bill four. That was a wonderful discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Got one right back here from Brett Viome, president of the CMT association. Hi. Um, Thanks for sharing your comments with us, Bill. I really appreciate it. And, and great job, Dave. Thanks for doing this. Um, my question was, you, you kicked off uh, your comments today by, by saying that you pay attention to insider transactions. And um, I, uh, during my career, I spent many years uh, trying to incorporate insider transactions in my analysis. And then I sort of had the rare um, uh, experience of being inside of a publicly traded company where I use TA to help advise the executives about timing their sales. And, and so I, I kind of learned that most uh, executives, including board members and, and executive, uh, executive officers have these compensation structures that reward them in incentive comp shares, unlike uh, their outright sales, which there is no real structure to. So I wanted to see if you would elaborate a little bit more on how you view insider transactions. Yeah, uh, you made a great point there on the sales front. We pay a lot less attention to insider sales than we would buys. Um, There's a lot of reasons people would sell something, and there's generally only reason people would make a sizable purchase in something because they think it's mispriced or cheap and they want more of it. Um, the context matters immensely on the insider side of things. And I think probably if you run an aggregate analysis of these things, it may not, you know, it may be hard to incorporate it. You need to look. The context matters. So who's doing the buy? Is the buy significant to them personally? Maybe not. Is it just a virtue signal? Is it, uh, you know, self-flagellation for poor behavior? Is it, um, or is it actually, uh, you know, is it actually cheap? And so all the context goes into that. Corporate strategy goes into that. Capital allocation goes into that. Um, and, Everything is context dependent, but you're looking at the track record of the person doing the buy. You're looking at the overall company strategy. And so the context does matter. Hi, uh, thanks for your comments today. Uh, the one question I have is if you took a Bitcoin currency and today we have the Fed with a lot more control. So when you have something that's decentralized, like the like a crypto, how do we prevent market crashes and what tools would the, would we be able to employ if everything's decentralized and not in government control? It's a great question. Um, yeah, well, so there's, there's puts and takes to it, right? In that the scenario you're envisioning is effectively hyper Bitcoinization where everything is, tr Bitcoin is the global currency, right? I don't think that's necessarily the only outcome. 
I think, you know, there's could be a hybrid where there's the dollar, there's Bitcoin, there's the yen, there's the euro, and maybe that's it. Could it be a digital dollar? Yeah, I think they want there to be a digital dollar. I think there's all kinds of major issues with that, uh, just uh, ethically and other stuff. But um, yeah, so th- that's a really good point. And that if there is hyper Bitcoinization, the, the, the offset to that, not having these escape valves that you mentioned, is that if everyone knows the rules ahead of time, and that's why I like Bitcoin, is that you know the rules ahead of time. You know exactly how many Bitcoin are going to exist. You know exactly what that's going to look like. And if people mess up, they mess up and you deal with the consequences. But um, hyper Bitcoinization, I don't think, is necessarily the only outcome. Uh, the other interesting thing is that, you know, you don't, you're, if it actually ends up that that is the method by which we transact, number one, volatility will be much, much lower in that circumstance just because of broader adoption, other things. But uh, the, so, sorry, where was I in this? I just lost my train. I'll let you get, get it back. But I, I would, the only thing I would say to that is, is, is that um, some of the most violent crashes have happened because of the regulations yeah, that have been put in place. And like, I, was the, the SEC was 1914? This one, the SEC was, the, well, no, the, I'm not, not, not the, the SEC, but the, the Federal Reserve was 1913. And some of the most egregious bubbles have happened since the, the Federal Reserve was put in place. So, It'd be like it'd be nice to think that that a, a you know a regulatory body like that would be able to corral and contain and make things better, but in actuality, as uh, Master Ugwe said, one often meets his destiny on the path he travels to avoid it. Yeah. So the um, the offset to that is that people's behavior will improve just because of the fact that you have a currency that doesn't lose its value over time. I think right, and that you have this immutable protocol where there's 21 million coins exclusively. You know exactly how many are mined. You don't have inflation. The reason inflation exists is because of policy missteps um, at, at the fiscal level. And so those policy missteps, uh, you, you don't have the inflation if you have a Bitcoin, which actually appreciates, has appreciated significantly, biggest trend of the past 12, 13 years. Um, so that is an offset is that it matches people's behavior. You want to save your money. If you're not investing in stuff that's going to go up faster than this rate of mistakes in the government, uh, you know, you can just sit it in, it sits in Bitcoin. You don't have that inflation. So right. hold its purchasing power. I think that was our last question. Gentlemen, thank you very much for, for your time today. Thank you. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima. In addition to candidate study of the official CMT curriculum, Optima provides a full video course on all of the material that candidates need to know for each level of the CMT exams. Each course is broken up into modules ranging from 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the complexity and length of the topics being covered. Learn more at Optima.com.